everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. Hey, Naomi. Hey, and today we are joined by, we're thrilled to have uh, Erica Komisar with us. She is a psychoanalyst and a parent. Uh, you've probably read her stuff. Uh, she's written in a bunch of publications, the Wall Street Journal, the Institute for Family Studies blog. Um, and she's the author most recently of Resilient Adolescence in the New Age of Anxiety. But the, the ti- that's the subtitle. The title is Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling. So I, we wanted to have Erica come on today. Welcome, Erica, uh, to Thank talk you. to us about kind of the state of kids and mental health, which is a topic that is on everyone's mind these days. Thank you for having me. So the, the first question I wanted to ask you is, I mean, you wrote this book, you know, in the last few years. Are you sure today that the sky isn't falling? Because it sure feels that way when we're talking about kids and mental health. I think the title is meant to say there's hope. Not that it isn't terrible what's going on, but that there's hope. And the hope is that as parents, as educators, as policymakers, we can make a difference in these kids' lives. But it's pretty dire right now. So, um, you know, the statistics, which, as you say, I wrote this book before COVID, and COVID has been an amplifier of what was already going on before COVID. One in five kids um, and adolescents were not going to make it out of their childhood without one, without a severe mental disorder. One in five, twenty percent. So, and I could give you other statistics that would scare you, but everybody's seen the statistics. But COVID has been an amplifier for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and what do you mean by a severe mental disorder? Like, just play that out for our listeners. Yeah. What we're seeing is um, anxiety, depression. Um, a rash of ADHD diagnosis, um, behavioral issues, things that are not along the lines of organic disorders, not schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. I mean, those things are more organic and those things are more genetically linked and really uh, were happening anyway. Although epigenetics says that the environment has to turn on those disorders, right? The environment has a, a lot of play with genetics, but things like depression, anxiety, ADHD, uh, behavioral issues, these are more closely related to environmental stress. And if you were to compare the, these numbers to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, what, what's the difference? And if there is a difference, what, what do you attribute that to? Well, let's see, the suicide rates in adolescence has tripled in during COVID, um, and it was already very high. And uh, I think depression went up 27%, uh, anxiety went up 30%, something like that. So, I mean, the numbers are just going up and up and up. Um, and people ask me all the time, well, is this just that, you know, we have a name for it now, it was going on before and all this. The answer is no, it's actually happening with more, with greater intensity and frequency now. Um, and there is some aspect of what's going on that is about pathologizing children, but for the most part, it's very real what's happening. So let's let's talk about COVID because that's what's on everyone's mind now. Um, uh, there was a recent report that came out; it was covered in the New York Times a few days ago, uh, where they found that 
55% of teen respondents said they suffered emotional abuse from a parent or other adult in their household in the preceding years. And 11.3% said they suffered physical abuse. So, I mean, how much of this is kind of the stress of lockdown, um, of, of all of the kind of isolation that kids were experiencing? And part two of that question is, is that all going to go away? Like, are we going to be able to now that things are opening up now that kids are back in school? Um, are they are kids resilient enough that, you know, they're going to be able to put all this behind them? Well, you know, you have big T trauma and little T trauma is how I put it, mm -hmm. is that adolescence is has full of little T traumas, meaning everything from puberty to social changes to um, academic pressure to everything that is happening in adolescence. But now you have a lot of big T trauma, which are things going on, um, intense losses, as you say, abuse, neglect, um, all kinds of things that that I would consider big T, T trauma. And it, it, answering your question, will they go away? Even if the um, environmental reason goes away, the trauma doesn't go away. We still need to treat these kids. So even if their parents go back to work or um, you know, uh, they're back in their social scene, the the results of that trauma and abuse will stay with them. And so we need to be treating these kids for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I obviously, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about how we can do that. And some of it's parental and some of it's schools. Well, let's go down that route, because I do think there's this line between who's who should provide the care and support and treatment, mm -hmm. as you say. Like, how do you draw that line before we get into the specifics? How do you draw that line between parental responsibility versus schools in terms of responding to some of these crises? Well, I mean, first and foremost, parents are for the majority of kids are their main the main part of their environment. You know, when kids are little. So I, I wrote a book about zero to three. When kids are little, parents are their entire universe. So you would say that parents are um, their entire environment. Adolescents have more to their environment than just parents. They have school, they have friends, peer groups, activities outside of school. Um, so they start to have lives of their own that are also part of their environment. So the answer is parents are a big piece of it still in adolescence because we know that adolescence is the second period of critical brain development, 9 to 25, where parents really do have a great influence. That's why I wrote the second book. They have a great deal of influence over the emotional regulation of children, meaning they don't think they do. Most parents do not think they say, oh, my kids don't want to be with me. They don't want to talk to me. I don't have that much influence. I wrote the second book to disprove that and say, actually, they do need you. They just need you in a way where they can't tell you they need you. Um, it's more <laughs> discreet needing of you. And so to teach parents, what are the signs that they need you? And when you when you have the opportunity to enter and help them. So parents are necessary, but schools are necessary, too, because, as I said, parents are only part of the environment. The other part of their environment are their friends and school. And they spend a lot of time at school. And so the grownups at school, the teachers, the social workers, the guidance counselors, the coaches, the mentors, they matter a lot. And so we aren't really, as a society, making use of them as much as we should. And the truth is that from a policy perspective. We can talk to parents about what's good for them. And, you know, mental health professionals like me can certainly write books like I do and, and do podcasts and teach people as much as possible. In the end, we can't control that as much. What we can control is 
offering services in schools. From a policy perspective, that's we can control that, right? The fact that I really think that schools should have armies, armies of social workers. I mean, at, you know, most public schools have like one or two guidance counselors or social workers for hundreds, sometimes thousands of kids. That every child today, every adolescent should have an assigned social worker who um, who they see every week. It should be as important as their academic work, meaning your right brain development should be as important, if not more important than your left brain development. Because in truth, your left brain can't develop unless your right brain is developing or has developed. So if we're not addressing the psychosocial stressors and the needs of these kids, what's going on outside of school and maybe in school socially. We're missing an opportunity here. And I know it's expensive. I know what I'm asking. I'm asking that we hire a lot of mental health professionals. So, you know, every kid has access to a mental health professional for a half an hour every week. Basically, what I'm saying is therapy in school. Because for the most part, kids are not going to get that outside of school. Most parents don't have the resources for it or they feel stigmatized. So they feel stigma related to it or they don't know how to get services or there aren't services. I mean, there are six month waiting lists for therapy for adolescents. If you go to a clinic anywhere in America right now, there's a three to six month waiting list yeah. for therapy. Well, let me I just I want to amplify your first point about kind of the, the power that parents have that they don't think they have. And I've been yeah. thinking about this a lot because I, I think that there's actually kind of a cultural message out there too that tells parents you don't have any control. Like once your kid's a teenager, they're kind of on their own and there's no way to even, you know, influence them. And it's interesting, like in uh, you know previous life, I used to, you know, spend a lot more time researching uh, on religion. And there are interesting studies that suggest like how many at like the, that, the likelihood that an uh, a, a, an adult is religious has an enormous amount to do with uh, the way their parents brought them up and not just the way their parents brought them up until the age of eight, but like what what kind of influence they had on them as teenagers. But I, I do want to kind of kind of press you a little bit on this, you know, a half an hour of therapy for everyone a week. I don't I, that that I don't I'm not sure about that chicken in every pot. Um, do you worry about what that will actually look like in practice? I mean, do you have confidence that there are enough competent social workers out there to do what you're asking to do instead of, let's say, there might be more mission creep um, that happens once we, uh, once every kid in America has a half an hour of therapy a week? Well, we don't have to call it therapy. I mean, we could just say they have access to a mental health professional for a half an hour a week to talk about what's going on in their life. And why, why are academic um, courses more important than their mental health. I mean, we really are prioritizing left brain development, but what we don't realize is that left brain development is not sustainable without right brain development. So why why do we feel that it's more important for them to be in another academic course as opposed to seeing a social worker a half an hour a week and talking about uh, maybe the fact that their parents are fighting at home or uh, their mother's an alcoholic or uh, their father lost his job, or there's somebody who's teasing them in school or bullying them online, or um, they, they're afraid of failing at school and they're feeling suicidal. And, you know, why are we so sure that all of this left brain curriculum is more important than right brain development and social emotional, what we say, emotional regulation? 
right? And so that's that's my issue with all of this is is if we didn't have eight hours or whatever it is, seven hours of school a day, you know, it's not like we have an hour of school and we got to squeeze in the reading, writing and arithmetic. We have like seven hours of school a day. And there's a few things that we could do as educators. I mean, I'm a, a therapist, but as educators can do, one is provide access to uh, a mental health worker of some kind. And of course they have to be well-trained. I mean, that's critical. I mean, we want to train anyone who is in a mental health field well. We want to make sure that they're well-trained. And I do agree with you. I agree that there are a lot of uh, ingredients to this cake. One of the biggest ingredients is parents. And that's why I write the books I do. I mean, I am a social worker and a psychoanalyst. I'm a mental health worker. So my first, my priority is to help influence parents, right? But you know, I know you also had me on today because of the piece I wrote about education. And I'm going to say that schools can do a lot more than they're doing, including the fact that, you know, we know, we know that the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for the negative feedback loop of the cortisol in the brain, meaning the part of the brain that shuts down the stress response, responds really well to exercise really, really, really well to exercise. Why we don't have more time during the day for kids to move their bodies in terms of their mental health, not 20 minutes a day or one PE period, but multiple times during the day when they can get up and physically move their bodies or do sports. That would help tremendously in terms of their emotional regulation but it also has been known to help with learning because the hippocampus is also responsible for working memory, right? Which means that we, we are able to retain information that we learn. So there's a lot of things that schools can do. Later school, start, later school start times, you know, with sleep wake phase delay, the idea that kids don't fall asleep till two hours later than adults at night because they produce melatonin later um, and they, they feel sleep pressure later. So they're not getting enough sleep when they have to be at school at eight o'clock in the morning. Schools could have later school start times. So we're not doing what we can for kids. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We, you know, I'm in the midst of uh, we're launching an uh, international baccalaureate high school later this uh, in August. And we are debating this very question of what should the start time be to ensure that young people are most attentive. But let me just ask you a question, because there is I think there's still an emerging concern, though. You've noted several times the role of parents and how critical they are. And I think there is a faction of parents today that are actually concerned that schools are encroaching a bit too much in certain of these areas, particularly around gender identity issues. You'll, you'll, you'll see discussions where schools may be having information about kids, whether it be their pronouns or what they're called in school or other, even outside of identity, but that parents might be the last to know. So I'm curious what you think about these yeah. kind of practices where so that's, that, that's Yeah, that's curriculum. So that's interesting because that's curriculum. So things like later school start times, more physical exercise for kids, um, having a half an hour a week, which is part of their their school experience of having to visit the or wanting to visit the school social worker who's assigned to them. That has nothing to do with curriculum. You're talking about parents feeling that schools have agendas and the agenda is to force feed children um, certain subjects and certain philosophies around gender and identity and sexual identity. That's very different. I mean, and, and I've heard that argument, you know, and I, I mean, what I will say is I, 
I can understand that in trying to do the right thing, schools have somehow maybe gone at the pendulum has swung and maybe they've dipped a little too far into a personal value area for, for, for parents. Too much of a good thing is not, not necessarily a good thing. But yeah, no, the things that I'm recommending aren't about agendas or curriculum. They're, they, they have more to do with things that can help children without force feeding. And I will say that if you told parents, parents are having such a hard time. I get emails every day from parents saying, I can't get services for my kid. I can't find therapists. There are no therapists. If you provided those services in schools, um, they would parents would be grateful. They wouldn't be resentful. They would they would say, "Wow!" And I don't have to pay for it because it's part of their school experience, or you know. And obviously, it, it wouldn't meet all needs. I mean, once a week therapy or once a week with a social worker isn't going to meet all needs, but it would certainly be, I think, appreciated by most parents. And just to go back a little bit, you know, you talk about one in five kids that will, will have some kind of mental health uh, disorder. Let, can we just talk for a moment about causality? Why is that happening? Why is that even pre-COVID? Like, what is it? Is it unstable families? Like, what? what is it the advent of social media? Is it technology? Like, what is driving this this increased level of anxiety and depression amongst young people? What do you think that's happening? Why? Well, you're going to you're going to speak to a lot of people who say it's it's social media or it's the breakdown in the family or it's religion disappearing. And the truth is, they're all true. <laughs> the truth is that it's multivariable and it's what I call a perfect storm. And by a perfect storm, I mean more stress, more intense stress than ever before. And, you know, I mean, we could go through what the stresses are more intense academic pressure, more competition, more choice. Everything is more, more stimulation, more exposure to violence and more exposure to sexuality online. I mean, everything's just more, you know, the best way I can describe it is if you go to an NBA game in New York at Madison Square Garden and you went like 30 years ago, the music was loud and, you know, but now you go and it's almost like you're completely overwhelmed with the extravaganza of it. That's what it's like. Everything is amped up. So there's more. But the problem is that our kids are going into adolescence, which is, remember, earlier, 9 to 25, earlier and longer. They're going into adolescence more neurologically and emotionally fragile. And what we need to be asking is, why are they going into adolescence more fragile and then exposed to more, 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 more? And when I say fragile... You know, the first my first book was all about how we are, um, you know, not providing that foundation of emotional security for our children that they need to go into this very turbulent time of adolescence, which has all those little T traumas of adolescence, but now has more of everything. And, you know, everything you mentioned is is overwhelming them. But one of the big things I like to talk about is that we, and maybe the most important one, is that we treat our very young children as if they're older. We impose on them, project onto them a kind of independence um, and self-sufficiency that they are not capable of. And I know that seems counter to what everybody talks about, helicopter parenting this. 
But at a very young age, we put our children in, into institutional care. We no longer provide them with that attachment security in the first three years. So they're already coming out of the first three years with a kind of what I call defensive independence, which makes them more fragile to break down later, right? It's not organic independence. It's not built from emotional security. It's built from the need to be independent and self-sufficient at a very young age, partly because as a society, we've, we really, I think, value self-determination and independence and parents want to do their own thing and they want to have fabulous careers and they want to be fabulous as, as individuals. The family has gotten lost. And, you know, to uh, mark what you said earlier, religion and faith and community has also gotten lost. I mean, there's a lot of things that think of it as a big puzzle. And there are many pieces to this puzzle. Just to sort of kind of contrast what we hear about the helicopter parenting from what you're saying is that you're not you're not saying that, you know, we we shouldn't let kids who are younger, you know, walk to the store by themselves or do things like that, that sort of build their independence. But you're saying this starts from a much younger age where, you know, they're they're supposed to kind of naturally develop a, a certain kind of independence based on the security that they feel from their their caretaker um, and that usually that caretaker is supposed to be, uh, you know, a parent or the immediate family and that we're by institutionalizing them young, that we're not that the organic that the independence is not growing organically. What evidence do you kind of see for that, you know, in, in terms of it's kind of an interesting story, but what would you say is the is the evidence that that the fragility is coming from the lack of kind of parental and uh, security at an early age. They can't soothe, kids can't soothe themselves today. And so there is a myth of soothing, that soothing comes, is, is automatically from the very beginning. And it started with this whole sleep training craze, you know, the idea that kids should be able to soothe themselves from the very beginning. And that isn't so. I'm going to quote a very famous analyst named Winnicott. And it's an interesting thing because it's both an analogy for healthy parenting, but an analogy for religion, too, because he refers to God in this, too, or it's been used to describe the importance of faith in children's upbringing. Winnicott talks about the importance of early attachment to create a level of trust in your environment. So you know that you can trust your parents to be there to soothe you when you need them, not every single second. Once you develop that trust, then you go and you sit and you, it's, this is a metaphor, but it's literal too. You go and sit and play by yourself with your parent watching on, but you can play by yourself and soothe yourself because you can look back and see your parent, but you have this feeling that even though you're alone, you're not alone. You're not lonely. You're, you have a sense of being alone, but having your parents watch on. And so that's the independence you're talking about, the ability to go to the store, ride your bike around the neighborhood, which I did when I was a kid, was because I had this feeling I had had enough in the beginning. I had had enough of that attachment security. And I had the feeling that my parents were in a way watching me wherever I was and caring for me. That is the analogy that's also used for faith, that children don't have, aren't raised with faith anymore. You could say, and Winnicott calls it the transitional space. In that transitional space where children can be by themselves, but not feel that they're alone. Right. Children don't have that feeling of being in that transitional space anymore. Mm. Wow. So if you were then to compare what sounds like one of your interventions, which is 30 minutes a week 
at therapy at school, if you were to compare that to having dinner with your parents every night together at the dinner table or going to church once oh. a week. Oh, right? don't get me started. They, they they need it all. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm not picking between these things. I'm just saying, I wish, listen, this is what I do, right? I write books. I write for newspapers. I do webinars. I go to conferences. I speak about this stuff nonstop to get parents engaged. Please engage your children. Please be engaged. Because if your children are struggling, we have to look to the family. Mental illness doesn't pop off the top of your head arbitrarily. It's not a spontaneous thing. It is the result of family dynamics and, and parental child dynamics. So let's look at that. So yes, parents need to be more engaged. They need to be more involved. They need to be more self-aware. They need to be able to regulate their own emotions so they can help their children regulate theirs. They need to learn and be open to learning. All of that. They need to eat dinner with their children every night. So, no, this is in addition. School is in addition. But the thing is, as much as I go and speak and write, and you know, we can't ultimately, in a po- from a policy perspective, other than giving paid maternity leave, which allows parents to form that attachment to their children and not put them into institutional daycare, part-time work for, for a primary caregiver who can be around primarily for their children. Um, you know, these are things we can do policy-wise, but more importantly, we can impact schools. From a policy perspective, this is an easy one, right? We, we can't necessarily make parents be good parents. I try, believe me, it's, it's my main intention. But we do, from a policy perspective, have this ability to say, whether you want to call it therapy, or your weekly rap session with a social worker. It doesn't have to be called therapy. If therapy scares people, I have no priority and I have no sort of, uh, you know, need to to beat my drum. I, and I don't say think it's the name therapy. therapy that's going to yeah. scare people. I think yeah. it's a, the presence of anyone who is a therapist or a social worker is going to feel like to a lot of parents, especially in the current environment, an intrusion. And in terms of the idea that it's, you know, that that we're just talking about curriculum, I think that, like I said, you're going to see if you were to institute such a policy, I think it might work great in some schools, maybe it would work great in Ian's schools. Um, <laughs> I but, was thinking uh, charters, I, we could start with charter schools. Right, but I think yeah. you're going to see a lot of the exactly the kind of stuff that we're having debates over in the curriculum. People are going to see, oh, well, we don't need to put it in the curriculum. Um, we'll just sneak it in the back door and the back door will be the meetings with the social worker and the therapist. So, I mean, I, I, I sympathize with what you're saying in terms of the idea that a lot of these kids really do need a trusted adult to talk to um, and that they need it regularly and that in order to find out if something is really going wrong at home, it would be great for that to happen. Uh, but I think it's going to be a lot more controversial than you imagine, maybe. Oh, I know it's going to be controversial. At the same time, I get hundreds of emails a week from people saying, where can I get my child therapy? Yeah. Yeah. The access and is a is a is a very, it's, very it's a, big problem right now. It's a big problem. And also parents wait as a medical model. They wait till there's a problem. And so I'm really big into prevention. And so yeah. if we can't um, kind of talk to kids every week, then there's no prevention. Then we're waiting till there are problems. And then once there are problems, there aren't enough therapists to handle those problems. I yeah. mean, the thing is, you just named an incredible tension, though. You said, you know, you can't make parents be good parents, right? And so the only policy lever 
you have is, well, then let's have schools be the place where kids are, you know, seeing a therapist each week, potentially. The problem, you know, the challenge with that is that suddenly then all the t- all the attention then gathers around, well, then it must be this, it, it's, it's like, this is the lever. But what are we doing for parents? Like, even if it's cultural messages or campaigns, because we can't, if the solution becomes, let's get a therapist in every, you know, 30 minutes, then that sucks all the energy out of the room. And in some ways, if you're into prevention, then the creation of more stable families from the outset, raising children is a far more better preventative strategy, right? I agree. Um, I think, though, schools have a great impact on parents. So one of the things um, I like about charter schools, which they're also criticized for, by the way, is that they tend to draw more involved parents to them because you, it's another step, right? You have to apply or you have True. to take that next step. And True. they're kind of seeking a better opportunity for their children. True. And so you're, you're already getting um, a group of parents that are probably, just by virtue of the process, more, more I want to pick my word ca- carefully, more capable, right? More open um, to, mm-hmm. to help, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, schools can also say, look, if you're going to, charter schools often do say, if, you're, if your kid's going to come here, you got to be involved. You got to come, you got to learn, you got to... You got to come to drug prevention workshops. You got to come to depression and anxiety prevention workshops. You got to come to communicating with your children workshops. You got, you know, we can do that in certain school environments. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, in big public schools, we don't have that option. And, and the truth is, I think many public schools would say we can't get the parents to come. We can't mandate it. You know, they're working. They're socioeconomically challenged. Many of them come from homes with many psychosocial stressors. How can we put this pressure on them? Right. So um, I agree with you. For me, the solution is getting to parents and getting to parents really, really, really early. Yeah. Even before they have children. I like going into universities. I like going into colleges. If they'll take me, I'll go speak anywhere. Yeah. And talk about the importance of attachment security. If you're going to have children and you don't need to have children to have a satisfying life. But if you choose to have children, this is what your children are going to need to be emotionally healthy and mentally well. Prevention. I'm all for that, you know. I'm just thinking out of the box. In addition to that, what can we do from a policy perspective? I mean, for me, you know, what can I say? This is not a conservative thing to say. It's not a liberal thing to say. Because, you know, if we don't have a long paid maternity leave, meaning or paternity, whoever's the primary attachment figure, if we don't have at least a year, if not more, of paid attachment, let's call it attachment figure leave. We can't raise healthy children if we're parents are forced for socioeconomic reasons to put their children into institutional care as early as six weeks old to go back to work. How can we expect these children to have the foundation of emotional security that's going to enable them to function in a world that is too stressful, where there's more, more, more and more? Well, that is a public policy question we might have to save for another day. (laughs) Um, and and now Ian has a lot of uh, workshops that he's going to go back to school with, <laughs> <laughs> and hire some more social workers. 
I have to ask one question. All right, because and Naomi, of course, you know I'm going to ask. There's no podcast that can go too far without talking about the success sequence, right? So, like a drinking game for us, yeah. (laughs) Yes. So, so Erica, you you may know that that there's some data out there that says, you know, particularly for young people to consider, that says that if you finish your education, you know, just a high school degree. You get a full-time job of any kind, just so you learn the dignity and of work. And if you have marriage first, millennials who follow that that series of decisions, 97% of the time avoid poverty. And the vast majority are in the middle class or beyond. And mm-hmm. there's no guarantee, of course, that a child raised in that environment that's formed is necessarily better off. But the data is pretty overwhelming that they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet there's a lot of opposition by some to even touch this topic in schools to teach mm-hmm. kids that there are these series of decisions in their control, not as a prescription, but as a description of here are the rewards or consequences associated with different series of life decisions. So I'm curious, given everything that you've talked about, the importance of family, the importance of prevention, what do you think about teaching this kind of content in schools, at middle schools or high schools, to let kids know that in the formation of your family, there are different choices that lead to very different outcomes. Yeah, I don't know. Somewhere along the way, we lost the idea of being able to talk about the ideal, right? So it doesn't mean that we can't accept the less than ideal. You know, I'm writing my third book now about divorce, and nobody wants to get divorced. The book is basically about how to get divorced without without harming your children or doing the least harm to your children. Um, And nobody wants to get divorced. And, you know, nobody wants to end up really a single parent. Nobody wants to end up um, having to raise children alone or there is an ideal. Um, But that doesn't mean if we talk about the ideal, we're also not accepting the less than ideal. I think we're not allowed to talk about what is normative anymore, as if there is no normative. And I think that's a problem with everything. I mean, it's a problem with sexuality and gender and marriage and religion. I mean, everything. It's just across the board. We're not allowed to use the word normative anymore because somehow then it disparages everybody who's not in that circle. Right. But we know that we can talk about the ideal and still accept the less than ideal. And that's really what's happening in society. We're no longer allowed to talk about the normative or the ideal for children. I talk about it. I don't, I mean, you know, like I talk about it. I go to the UN. I talk specifically about that, um, how, you know, it's, it is better for children to be raised in, in a nuclear family. There is no doubt that it is better for children to be raised in a marital unit. It just, they do better and they do better, uh, for a number of reasons that are emotional reasons based on their development. And I won't go, maybe, as you said, maybe that's for another podcast. Um, But yeah, they do do better. Why can't we talk about that? And I think we should be able to talk about that. Thank you. I mean, that's true. It's it's the sort of non-judgmental culture um, has meant not only that we can't, you know, judge other choices, but but we also can't talk about what the ideal choice would be. So all right. Well, unless Ian wants to interrupt me again, uh, <laughs> I'm going to thank Erica again for coming on today. We really appreciated having her perspective on this. Yes. And uh, this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get this podcast uh, on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcast. So thanks very much. I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Erica, thank you. That was fantastic. 
Thank you. Thank you, both of you. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Ian.